good singing. <laughs> you're you're uh, doing what you're asked. That's great. <laughs> Speaking of singing, any fans of Bob Dylan? Yeah, a bunch of you, I know. I'm a big fan. Actually, I'm more of a fan of his songs than I am of his singing. But but um, but um, a fan nevertheless. It came to mind this week because of that iconic song he wrote, which seemed so apropos to the moment. It came to my mind. The times they are a changing, right? He wrote that in 1963, and it became the title song of his third album in 1964. You likely know he was this year's surprising winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. It was kind of a shocking announcement. In its citation, the Swedish Academy credited Mr. Dillon with having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And as I was reading about this, I I came across this notation by poet Philip Larkin, who observed that Mr. Dillon's words were delivered in a, quote, cawing, derisive voice that seemed to carry the weight of myth and prophecy. And of course, over the decades of his writing, there were many people who thought Dylan functioned as a prophetic chronicler of the last decades of the 20th century. And also, this language seemed to defy time. Consider these lines from Blind Willie McTell. Well, God is in his heaven, and we all want what's his, but power and greed and corruptible seed seem to be all there is. That has a near-biblical cadence, which was typical of Dylan's writing. And listen to these verses the times they are a-changing. Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. And if your breath to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall, for he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are a-raging. They are a-changing. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast, the slowest now will later be fast, as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last, because at times they are a-changing. He often correlated biblical imagery. You know that that is very reminiscent of Jesus' own words. 
the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And more than 50 years later, these lines seem timeless, don't they? And actually nearly prescient to current conditions. So, I, I think of him as a prophetic voice in his own right. And of course, he had many antecedents. Prophetic voices have come before two of whom we heard from today. I'm thinking Mr. Larkin's observation about Dylan could be applied to John the Baptist, actually. John the Baptist, you know, his words were delivered in a cawing, derisive voice that seemed to carry the weight of myth and prophecy. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the verse on our Christmas card today from the lovely sentiment of Cousin John. It doesn't have the same mellow ring as the times they are a-changing or the same sweetness of silent night, holy night, All is calm, all is bright. It occurs to me that even cynics and atheists find it hard to resist the sentimental side of Christmas. Cooing baby, mother and child, friendly beasts, and angelic hosts singing Alleluia, warm family time, and friends blending their voices in an impromptu choral moment around a piano sponsored by spiked drinks. That's what Christmas and its advent have often come to mean. Well, that and shopping, of course. (laughs) I can't forget the shopping. Over these next weeks, media will be cluttered with analysis of our collective spending patterns as though that had become the principal message from baby Jesus. Consume your way to a better tomorrow. For our pleasure, the story has been sanitized and prettified, made suitable for children of all ages, even us big ones who tend to like our religious traditions, sweet and smooth and easy to swallow, like a satisfying rum-laced eggnog sprinkled with a bit of nutmeg. The days between Thanksgiving and New Year's have become a feel-good marketing moment of stupendous proportions for our culture, transmogrified into a major driver of our economy. We should all give good gifts because that will keep the nation solvent for another six months or so. (laughs) I was thinking about it this week. There's no Christmas pageant that I have ever seen that begins with a little guy dressed up like the wild desert prophet shouting out to the audience, you brood of vipers! That would spoil the moment. So we'll talk about John now at a safe distance from December 24th. And then, if you're brave, you'll remember John's part of the story as a sort of homework assignment when you've returned to your room at night after overdosing on relatives and friends and booze and rich food. At last, in your own bed, left to your own agitated thoughts, you can have a moment to consider just what this 
season might mean for you after all. Besides a headache, credit card payments, and a New Year's resolution to start another unsuccessful diet. I like to point out on this Sunday every year, because we read about John every year at this time, the second Sunday of Advent, I like to point out that he is standing above my head in our mosaics. He has been cleaned up, I will point out. It would not do to have a disheveled, wild-eyed nomad popping a locust in his mouth, emblazoned in sparkling mosaics and 34 different kinds of marble. But you can tell it's John because his left hand and index finger are held up, pointing to the figure in the dome mosaic. In Christian art, John is often depicted pointing to Jesus because that was his prophetic vocation as described in Scripture. He's the one that announces or points to the Messiah. And I say to you, he's an important link for us to the real world. To the real world. Not the make-believe world. The real world. And here's the interesting thing. It seems that John held real spiritual power. Otherwise, why would anyone go out into the desert to listen to his challenging message? You know, decades of New Yorker cartoons have completely made a joke of John the Baptist. You know, the so-called character holding a sign, say, on Park Avenue that says, Repent. But John was not a cartoon in his day. He held real spiritual power. All sorts of people went out to listen to him. He he was sort of a prophetic rock star, actually. And I'm thinking that if he were around today, he might be able to make a lot of money. What with his cawing, derisive voice that carried the weight of myth and prophecy. As it is, it's hard enough for all of us to manage to make our way to a well-appointed, artfully constructed sanctuary in the company of, you know, mostly respectable people for about an hour listening to well-organized, civilized speech and lovely music in the center of a spectacular metropolis. Given Roman oppression, John was likely anticipating that the hope for Messiah would come with something of a political agenda for his people. But, but this was always linked in the prophetic tradition with the ethical character of the people. These were not separate ideas. Could they possibly reform in time for the new thing God intended for them? I'm guessing this is what drove John's popularity, this insistence that God had something big in mind, and that meant the lazy status quo was no longer acceptable. His words seemed harsh, but they were all about hope. The times they are a-changing, he sang 2,000 years before Dylan came on the scene. Something big was afoot, something seismic, disruptive, as we like to say. Those who were unprepared would be swept away. That's the message the people came out 
to the desert to hear. And we're told all sorts of people went out. Now, according to Luke, Luke adds a, a little bit more to the story of John's words at this point. Luke says, even the corrupt tax collectors went out to listen to John. And after hearing his truth-telling, they asked, well, you know, given all of this, John, given that the times they are a-changing, what should we do? And he said to them, simply, stop cheating. Stop it. (laughs) That's what he said to them. And then the soldiers said, well, well, John, what are we supposed to do? And he said to the soldiers, well, stop extorting and intimidating. Stop it. And then to other people, just other people, they said, well, John, what should we do? And he said, well, if you've got two coats, give one of them to someone who doesn't have one. And if you have plenty to eat, share it. Here's the amazing thing about this. God's big thing has completely homely ramifications for the people. They were supposed to clean up their act, get their lives in order, stop abusing one another, and put on the heart of compassion. And and if they do this, John says, you're going to be welcoming God's inbreaking kingdom because that reflects the nature of citizenship in God's inbreaking kingdom. He might have said, love God with everything you've got and love your neighbors and love yourselves while you're at it. And he might have added, God's way in the world is not for the faint-hearted, but it is the way of hope and faith and love. It is a demanding path where the chaff of your life will burn away to reveal the beautiful God nature within. This is not a sentimental process, and you cannot buy it in a store. It comes by way of intention and decision, work and prayer, patience and support of sisters and brothers traveling the same path. And... And most importantly, it comes through God's providential grace that always, always, always holds, always sustains, no matter what. These changing times require the work of love. He might have said that. So I'm suggesting then that that's our Advent homework assignment you almost can't get more explicit than John is, and that's why I love it so much. The explicit nature of our work is to consider our role, our life, our work, our call, the call that God places on us. Imagine John confronting your personalized corruptions with a word of transforming grace. And then see on the other side what God intends for you 
I tell you, this is really powerful stuff that you won't get anywhere else. You won't hear about this anywhere else. You're only going to hear about this here. Bloomingdale's does not stock this. And you will not find it in a bottle. But man, oh man, an awesome gift is there for the taking because the times, they are a-changing.